This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Back to You podcast. I'm David Spears, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And here to answer your questions this week, I'm very pleased to welcome ABC political reporter Mel Clark in Canberra and ABC Radio Perth Drive presenter Jeff Hutchinson in Perth. Welcome to you both. Very nice to be here, David. Hi, Mel. Good to be back. Well, it has been a busy old week in Parliament, which sat actually for three days this week to catch up for the sitting week that was lost when the Queen died. We had the Optus hack. We had a deal to secure gas supplies for next year. We had a final budget outcome announced for last financial year. Big improvement in the bottom line, but still a big deficit. But The biggest issue of the week, one that I think has the potential to profoundly change the way politics and government works in Australia, was the introduction of legislation for the National Anti-Corruption Commission, the NAC. The bill was tabled on Wednesday morning. The details finally revealed for all to see. And it was interesting, almost immediately, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, confirmed he was on board. He liked the model. The coalition has shifted its position quite significantly under Peter Dutton on the issue. The independents and the Greens, well, they're largely happy, but they are concerned about one element, and it's a big concern. Public hearings at the NAC would only be held in exceptional circumstances. The default would be private hearings. And this is what our listeners have been interested in. We've got some questions on this, and let's start with one from Johnny, who asks... How is it possible for a public hearing to harm someone's reputation if they answer honestly and haven't done anything wrong? Johnny goes on to ask, what's the definition of exceptional circumstances? Why can't the Commission be trusted to decide whether hearings should be public? So there's a, a couple of parts to that question, Mel, to you first on this. You know, what, what should anyone be worried about? If Johnny's they... gone straight to the thorny ones. Yeah. <laughs> he has, he has. But if they answer honestly, haven't done anything wrong... What have they got to worry about? This is, a, I think, a problem that comes up in in legal circumstances quite often. And part of the problem can be that cases that involve corruption and often cases that involve criminal elements, be this something the NAC would look at or, or, or in a standard criminal case, is they're often very detailed and very nuanced. And when things are done in public, people might hear some of the elements, but not all of the elements. And that might make it really hard for them to draw a satisfying conclusion or even draw the right conclusion if perhaps they only hear some of the details, but not all of the details. It also comes to, I mean, Johnny says, if you haven't done anything wrong, it kind of depends, doesn't it, on your definition of wrong. I mean, something embarrassing uh, for a politician, they may not want everybody hearing a phone call they had or a text message they sent. It may not be wrong or illegal or even corrupt, but it it might be embarrassing. And, and for a politician, their reputation is is everything. Reputational damage is a, a huge part of, uh, and perhaps the, the main reason that politicians uh, in this circumstance are, are a little bit worried about the knack. And we should probably also point out that reputation matters much more for a politician than in a lot of other standard jobs. Whether or not they get to keep their job can be based on someone doing very careful calculation, but it can also be based on uh, constituents just not really liking the vibe of the thing and casting their vote in a different way. So they do have a different employment circumstance as well. Well, that's true. That's true. But Jeff, does anyone have sympathy for those poor old politicians or would they like to see all of them put in the dock publicly whenever there's an investigation that crosses their path? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we should let the public have that right because Johnny's <laughs> point 
How is it possible for a public hearing to harm someone's reputation if they answer honestly and haven't done anything wrong? Well, as Mel said, you know, our courts are full of cases where someone goes before the court, we hear the allegations against them, it might be some time before we, we truly process what the allegation is. If the court determines the person's done nothing wrong, we, as the public, are still inclined to say, didn't he go to court for something one day? Wasn't it about this? Yeah, I've never really trusted him. So I I do take the point that if every hearing is a public hearing, then then it can be really problematic. Yeah, I'm curious to know, you know, we are to have a federal integrity watchdog wants to hold public hearings in exceptional circumstances. Can we have a definition of what those exceptional circumstances are? Well, this is what Johnny's asking too. And I think this is a really good question, right? What's the definition, Johnny says, of exceptional circumstances? Why can't the commission be trusted to decide whether hearings should be public, which is what happens certainly under the New South Wales ICAC model. It's left to the the commission, uh, well, for the commission and deputy commissioner to decide whether a hearing is public or not. But in the legislation that uh, Mark Dreyfus, the Attorney General's tabled, let me just go to it because, look, it sheds a little of more light on this. It says, in deciding whether to hold a hearing or part of a hearing in public, the commissioner may have regard to the following. A, the extent to which the corruption issue could involve corrupt conduct that is serious or systemic, fair enough. B, uh, whether certain evidence is of a confidential nature or relates to the commission or to the alleged suspected commission of an offence. That would presumably mean they'd go for a private hearing. C, any unfair prejudice to a person's reputation, privacy, safety or well-being. Fair enough, that might make it private as well. D, whether a person giving evidence has a particular vulnerability, including they're under the direct instruction or control of another person in a relative position of power. E, the benefits of exposing corrupt conduct to the public and making the public aware of corrupt conduct. So it's that last point there, Mel, that there might be a benefit in exposing corrupt conduct to the public that makes it an exceptional circumstance to hold a public hearing. It sounds limited. It, it does sound limited, and in some ways it, it neuters one of the, the key objectives of having an anti-corruption commission, and that is its mere existence and the idea that you could face public scrutiny for corrupt behaviour is a major deterrent for corruption happening in the first place. So in that sense, there is a very important role for public hearings. And the crossbenchers, a number of them have made it very clear, they think that the idea of having this definition of an exceptional circumstance in which that would be the trigger for something to be public. Well, many of them are arguing, well, if we're talking about serious and systemic corrupt conduct, that in itself is an exceptional circumstance. So why do you need this extra barrier? If we are talking about serious or systemic corrupt conduct, that should be enough for the Commission to be able to say none of the other exceptional provisions apply around uh, the items you've just listed. Therefore, the default should be public unless there's a reason not to. But what we've seen is Labor land on this position where it's the reverse. The default is it's private unless there's a reason to make it public. Yeah, and and Jeff, one of the other concerns people have raised is, and, and Johnny... Johnny asked, why can't the commission just be left to decide whether it should be public or private? If you have in the legislation that only in exceptional circumstances can public hearings be held, what do you think everyone's going to do who's called to appear? They're going to argue, well, hang on, mine should be private and mine's not exceptional. And they're going to go to court, aren't they? This could drag things out in the courts. I think that there is a public desire for a lot of this to be public 
And the idea, uh, I've read some interesting things this week, the former federal court judge Michael Barker and, and some other prominent legal folks say, exceptional circumstances should be replaced by a public interest test, i.e., does the public need to know what this is about? Has the public had engagement with this issue and should be very much party to the evidence being presented in a public court? And I think we do want that as well. I, I noticed that Ian Temby this week, who led the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption back in the 90s, says that it's unconscionable that people against whom serious allegations are made should have to wait a year or more before they know what the findings are. And and this refers to you know people like Gladys Berejiklian, who appeared in ICAC in October of 2020, resigned a year later, and today still hasn't been given the ICAC findings. So when we talk about what a National Anti-Corruption Commission is going to be, we want it to be thorough, we want it to be transparent, and we want to know as many of the details as we can, because that that in essence is what it's about, isn't it? It's about keeping uh, politicians and people in government honest and very, very accountable to us. So I think the public will have some difficulty with the idea of much of this being behind closed doors. I understand Labor and the Coalition would prefer it that way because they have more skin in the game and the Teal Crossbenchers, with no skin in the game, want those windows opened. They do, uh, but this is a concern for listeners and for the public, as, as you mentioned. We've got a question from Jeff along similar lines. Jeff asks, the government and opposition both defend a position that says the Commission hearings must be secret unless there are exceptional circumstances. Jeff says, if I'm charged with almost any offence and go to trial, the default position is it's a public trial. It's only secret in exceptional circumstances. Why should we accept such rank hypocrisy? Well, I suppose, Jeff, one of the differences is no one in front of this commission has actually been charged with an offence at that point. These are investigations that may lead to a finding of corruption, that may lead to a criminal charge, that may lead to a court hearing. But, Mel, you know, if, if you go back to the EDOB example, that's kind of the, the steps you have to go through. This is not actually convicting someone of, of an offence. That's right. This is where we get to the point where this is a different stage. A better comparison perhaps is not uh, suggesting that the Anti-Corruption Commission is a, is an equivalent trial process to a criminal procedure, but it's more like the poli- a police investigation being carried out in public. And we don't see that happen with other cases in the criminal justice system. So it, it's, not a, it's not a direct comparison, but there are other elements here where we might be able to compare the, the different circumstances and say, all right, uh, do politicians deserve different treatment here than a, a general person? And perhaps this in- reinforces Jeff's point, and that is that these are people in public office when we're talking about politicians, or if they're public servants, then they have uh, a significant role to play on behalf of society in their role, and therefore perhaps we are willing to accept that a higher standard should be placed upon people in these public roles than your average Joe Blow going before court. I think it's a good point. Anyway, look, it's got a while to run yet. Six weeks of parliamentary inquiry. Basically, the politics of this, the coalition want to stick with that definition of exceptional circumstances. The crossbenchers, the Greens and independents do not. The government would love to have everybody on board at the foundation of this commission to give it wide and strong legitimacy at its birth. Um, So we'll see whether they can find a way to keep everybody on side. Maybe 
change that wording around a little bit if they have to, but without losing uh, too many um, supporters of this commission. Jen asks, what's the outcome if anyone is found to be corrupt? Is the hearing then made public? My understanding, Jen, is no. Private hearings would remain uh, private, but uh, findings of corruption by this body are basically just that. It would then be up to referral to a prosecution, but uh, it, you know if, if it's if it's considered a criminal offence has has been carried out. But Mel, it, that that's right, isn't it? It's basically just the finding itself that is the penalty from the commission. That's right. It has the power to make a, a, a finding of fact around corruption that in itself should carry. Enormous weight. I mean, it's a career ender in many cases. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it should be, David. I think. I think if you asked that question years ago, everyone would say, "Well, of course it is, and always has been." But in this era, we tend to to wonder if that's the case. But it is true, isn't it, that our expectation of a national anti-corruption commission, if uh, if you are judged guilty of whatever this charge is. That should be you done politically, broadly, shouldn't it? I think it's without question that if there is a finding of fact that someone has engaged in corruption, it should end their career. The process by which that happens mightn't be super clear at this point. What we know is that the commission can make a finding of corruption. It can refer potentially criminal matters to the director of public prosecutions. It can make its report public. But I believe the, then the action would have to come either by the parliament itself to respond to these reports if it wants to censure an MP. And if that doesn't happen, then it's, it's voters at the ballot box. Can't can we just do something more mechanical and have a, a you know, trapdoors in the chamber <laughs> where there has been this determination? Uh, dear member, no, you can't think you can ride this out because we want you to go. And then 20 seconds later, the seat's empty. I'm also really fascinated with the, with that question about um, third party involvement too, and whether third parties uh, appear in these investigations. And, and I know the crossbench MPs and the Greens want that. I think the public wants that too. I think Labor and the Parliament more broadly, by how everyone is getting on board with the the version that Labor has put forward, is recognition that there is significant public sentiment here that something needs to be done. And yes, a lot of the focus is on politicians, but there is general scepticism around the system more broadly. And that absolutely extends to public servants. Uh, we see it extend to the media as well for the role they play in happenings at, at Parliament House. So I think the public sentiment is very much that this should have a broad basis, mm. but not convinced that the politicians are, as a whole, that the parliament as a whole has the will to extend this too broadly. Well, I just think if you're a federal politician and I'm a scoundrel trying to get you to do something for me and I'm paying you or offering you a holiday in an exotic location, I think I should be called before an NAWC inquiry to be called to account I because that, that also sends a little message more broadly that says we expect honesty here. It does. I think there are some cultural barriers to overcome within Parliament House itself because there's a real culture at Parliament House, not so much when it comes to outside lobbyists, I don't think, but certainly to do with ministerial staff and electoral staff for MPs, the idea that they should be, on, be beyond uh, the cut and thrust of the scrutiny that politicians themselves uh, are rightly subjected to. So I think there is still a, a historical approach that continues to this day of saying staff are in a different category mm -hmm. and therefore we'll try to protect them and shelter them from 
from the sort of robust uh, transparency that is expected of MPs. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure that the Times still acquit with the idea to the extent that it has held a Parliament House. To your point, Jeff, my understanding on the reading of the bill is that those third parties, right? So say you did offer a bag of cash or a you know, luxury holiday to a, to a politician or a public official. If you're successful in that bribe, then yeah, you're, you're pinged, you're going to end up before the commission. We could. But if you're unsuccessful, if the, the politician or the public official says, no, thanks, and they remain squeaky clean... That's not something that would come before the commission. So unsuccessful attempts wouldn't be in the remit the, uh, of the commission. They'd be very busy, wouldn't they, if they were at naming or announcing every unsuccessful attempt? <laughs> Perhaps. So, look, we've had a few questions around the issues we've just covered there about the secrecy provisions, also what happens with findings from the NAC, the uh, the commission. We've got one too from Kevin who wants to know who the commissioners are going to be, how they'll be selected and by who. Kevin says, I hope it'll be less partisan than the AAT and the FWC, that's the um, Administrative Appeals Tribunal and the Fair Work Commission. So the commissioner and the commissioners or his or her deputies will be technically chosen by a, a joint parliamentary committee, which the government will have the numbers on. So effectively, Mel, this will be the government deciding ultimately who the commissioner is, right? Ultimately, the, the government will decide and officially, I believe that it it will technically be a decision of cabinet upon advice from that oversight committee that is established. Now that committee will be chaired by a, a government MP. The, the crossbenchers were hoping that there might be, and the opposition were hoping it might be a co-chair arrangement, uh, but the government have made it clear it, it would be chaired by a government MP, which means a deputy chair would be in opposition, but there would be crossbench members on that committee as well. Peter Dutton has made it clear that he expects that an opposition leader would be consulted. But of course, these are all quite open. I mean, the idea of consultation or taking advice from a committee can vary from genuine bipartisan across the parliament engagement to a cursory notification. I'm letting you know I'm doing this. Consider this the consultation. Here's the decision. So it does, to some extent, come down to the approach taken by the leader of the day. I think we can safely assume, though, that the government would approach this sort of appointment, right, given the, the nature of the work involved here, in a similar way that it approaches decisions on federal and high court judges. This week, Jane Jago was appointed as a high court judge. Um, you know, we have a pretty good record, I think, on both sides, uh, generally speaking, when it comes to uh, that level of appointment that you know, we, we, we do get it right, um, that they're, they're non-partisan, their uh, judicial expertise is highly regarded. Jeff, do you think we should be worried that suddenly a political appointee is going to end up in that job? I don't think so. Uh, not at the moment. And for the reasons that you just said, David, I don't think uh, Anthony Albanese wants to be vulnerable to any kind of criticism. And you know, there, there was a, a curious kind of cross-the-floor pragmatism on display this week, wasn't it, where Peter Dutton, as you have said, David, uh, um, at various times a critic of this idea has, has broadly come on board. Um, I, I think all sides of politics know that this is what the public uh, not just require but demand – so its establishment has to be as, as squeaky as it can be. And, and it's true when we talk about appointments of high court and federal court judges or royal commissioners that there is broad acceptance that the person playing that role is the right person. 
I think we've seen a, a good analogy perhaps in the Independent National Security Legislation Monitor, uh, which ha- has had a, a similarly crucial oversight role uh, needing to be selected by government that we have seen good examples of excellent selections made that are certainly non-partisan. But Kevin is nonetheless right to point to uh, authorities at a lower level like the AAT and the Fair Work Commission that have had appointments made that are partisan. Uh, so I think that's just a reminder that it, that we do need to be vigilant and we can't take for granted that we that the system that we currently have that is working, that it, it can be perverted. And that's where this oversight committee of parliament will be really important for them to work in a collaborative manner to help maintain uh, the position that we've got now where we, we do expect uh, that those kind of appointments are, are made reasonably. Let's move on. In fact, there's a little bit of a segue here. The question from Keith on the Optus saga. Keith says, should Gladys Berejiklian have anything to say in her new Optus role of managing director, enterprise, business and institutional? Well, perhaps, but she (laughs) hasn't said a word as far as I'm aware, uh, Jeff. But in fact, Optus generally seem to have gone very quiet late in the week, haven't they? Uh, They have. And and look, this this has just been a, a deadly week and a bit, hasn't it? I thought the Optus CEO earlier in the week sounded... Very much like the mother of a kidnapped child, you know, seeking nervously to reassure <laughs> those that everything was okay, that, that good things are in place, the situation's under control. And anyone listening to her clearly believed otherwise. It's, it's, been, it's been disastrous. And the thing is, you know, we're being told nearly half the Australian population has been affected in one way or another. Now, that's quite nerve-wracking. I mean, not everyone's an Optus customer, but we just don't know yet how or why or what the consequences might be of this amount of information being somewhere else. I suspect with these sort of things, there are all sorts of firms who specialise in crisis control. And I think it'd be a safe bet that one of them's been called in and made the call. Everybody, shut up. We're making no further comment until um, we know exactly what we're going to say here, because it was fascinating, Mel, the pushback from the government on this. You know, Optus initially said it was a sophisticated hack. Claire O'Neill, the Home Affairs Minister, said, uh uh-uh, uh, not at all. You know, they left the window open, she said. That they were pretty keen to shame Optus from the get-go on this. They did not hesitate, and there were plenty of references made to if there were a circumstance like this overseas, they would be facing fines of an extraordinary amount of money. And we don't see this overseas because uh, other other companies there are making a a much better detailed risk assessment of, of where they need to be prioritising their spending. So we've seen a very very strong approach from the federal government so far, which might give us an insight into how they're feeling about this. Whether that's going to flush someone like Gladys Berejiklian out, as Keith seems to hope, I I doubt it. Uh, I suspect she was hoping for a a quiet, uh, controversy-free post-political job, but it doesn't seem to be that she's landed there. Not this one. Jeff. I wanted to ask you, because I think right now those millions of Australians affected probably just want some immediate help in replacing documents that are out there, you know, getting a replacement driver's license, passport, Medicare numbers, whatever they need to stop themselves being exposed here to potential fraud. And different states are doing different things. Where you are, I've read a little bit about this. What's the go with driver's licences and getting them replaced? Hello, I'm Mark McGowan, and I wish you hadn't asked me that question. Uh, Well, we are the only state in Australia where if you lose your driver's licence, you don't get issued a different number, or if someone steals your driver's licence, you still have the same number. Now, that is being remedied a little after the fact, but that is being remedied because uh, we are out of step 
with the rest of the country. I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? That one of the issues too, obviously, is the conversations around privacy laws and, you know, the, the Privacy Act. When was it established? 40 years ago. So imagine how hopelessly out of date that is today. And, you know, as an example of the kind of frustration, I had a, a woman named um, Avril yesterday talk to me on the program. She says that she was looking for a job several jobs and was asked for all kinds of information while applying for those jobs, bank account details, Medicare driver's license details. She didn't get those jobs, but of course those firms or those organisations are hanging on to that data, even though she didn't go on to work for them. She's also an Optus customer, so she's feeling very exposed this week. And I spoke to Professor Kimberly Weatherall from uh, UNSW, Professor of Law there, who said, really, this is an opportunity for us to look at the Privacy Act and and really start asking whether businesses and organisations really have any right to know more about us than what they actually need from us. And it's going to be so interesting to see if we start sort of having clearer boundaries of, of what you can know about me unless I'm very happy to offer it to you. It's really interesting stuff, I reckon. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It sounds like from what Mark Dreyfus is saying, there will be change at a federal level on this to uh, clean up what companies can collect, how long they can hold that data, all of that. Some tougher fines uh, as well. So he's, he's a busy man. He's got a bit on his plate in the next little while. Now, I just want to go to some breaking news, something that's happened while we've been chatting here as part of this podcast. The National Cabinet meeting's been underway in Canberra. And the Prime Minister has just announced that they're scrapping isolation rules. We have agreed uh, today that we will end, uh, states and territories will end their respective mandatory isolation requirements on the 14th of October. That's a win for Dominic Perrottet. The New South Wales Premier had been pushing this for a while. Jeff, just quickly to you first on this. Do we know the position Mark McGowan went into today's meeting with? How would he be feeling about no more isolation requirement? I I think he would go where all the politicians are going, and that is as far away from this pandemic as possible, David. We know the public health considerations are still, uh, still real, that the pandemic is still real, and who knows, maybe two months we'll be talking about another variant, but for the time being, politicians and probably a lot of people who vote for them don't want to talk about it anymore, so it's... I think the message across the country is back to work and preferably not from home. Yeah, and you can see those staff shortages right across the economy, Mel, and business have been urging some change on this. It's costing the government too because they have to keep up that pandemic relief payment for particularly casuals who have to isolate. So, you know, I'm not sure if that's a factor in their thinking here on this. They might save a few bucks by ending uh, the isolation rules. There will be some concern about this though and whether it it is going to trigger another increase in COVID case numbers? There's not a unified, not a wholly unified position in the business community because there are some sectors that are concerned that if we take away a mandatory isolation period, we'll see another spike and acceleration of transmission and that will actually leave them uh, with more sick staff. So they're not isolating, but they're at home being sick with the actual disease. And therefore that doesn't help them with their staff shortage issues in any way, shape or form and might give them a a short-term worsening position. So there are different views in industry about whether or not this 
this isolation period is a help or a hindrance in terms of managing staff numbers. The AMA have made it pretty clear what their position is prior to this National Cabinet meeting decision. Uh, They uh, went as far as saying it would be scientifically illiterate to suggest that there's no need for an isolation period anymore. So I I can expect we'll see some controversy around this decision. But Jeff is very much on the money in that the politicians are looking at public sentiment broadly. And of course, it's not homogenous, but broadly, there is a, a large public desire to return to something post-pandemic. It's uh, not the new normal. It's uh, it's the beyond the normal we have become used to. It's the post-pandemic world and that's where they want to be. And Dominic Perrottet has got an election coming up. Dan Andrews has one even sooner uh, in, what, about six or so weeks from now. We'll see what emerges there, but that's only just been unfolding while we've been answering your questions, which I've thoroughly enjoyed doing and thoroughly enjoyed chatting to uh, both of you, Jeff Hutchison and Mel Clark. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Lovely to be with you you both. And thanks to our producers, Matt Bevan, Sam Dunn and Robin Powell. Please keep sending us your questions. We love to get them. You can send them via the ABC Listen app or via email to backtoyoupodcast at abc.net.au. We'll be back in your feed next Friday. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.